0: Well, welcome to uh, a day as we continue to go through the Bible, which I love doing. We use a method called SOAP, which is an acronym for Scripture Observation Application and Prayer. We read the scripture, we observe it, we interpret it, work out how we can apply it to our lives and then pray about it. And my encouragement for you is to watch these videos so that you can understand the word of God, but I also want to encourage you to rightly divide the word of God for yourself. Uh, I'm just trying to do my uh, what, what I feel God calling me to do, and 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 to teach what I believe the Bible is revealing to us through these scriptures. Uh, but I, I encourage you to listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit for yourselves. Today we are going through the second half of First Thessalonians chapter four. And they are probably some of the most important verses in the entire Bible concerning your future and my future as Christ followers. And also for those who have uh, died up until now, who are going to die between now and Jesus comes back. And there's so many questions we have. We're not going to answer all of them, but we are going to go through a lot here in this passage that is something that Paul really wanted to emphasize to the church in Thessalonica now you have to remember that he's writing this to a church that he established he was only there for a few weeks and he taught them a lot and then he was chased out of town gets a good report a little while later then writes this letter back to them and it's amazing when you constantly are reminded what he taught them in just the f- that those few short weeks that he was with them. So let's, let's get into talking about this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 13. Some of the most important words written in the Bible are in this very verse. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So in the few weeks that Paul had with the church in Thessalonica. He emphasized the soon coming return of Jesus. And the Thessalonian church believed that, and they believed it in earnest. And it was part of the reason that they were actually had become the kind of church that Paul wanted to compliment so highly. But after he left them, after those few weeks, they started to wonder about those Christians who had already died before Jesus comes back. And they were troubled by this idea that some people might miss out on on this great future event and somehow they might miss the victory, the blessing of Jesus' coming. David Guzik says this, It is with some interest we note that four times in his letters, Paul asked Christians to not be ignorant about something. In Romans 11, he said, Don't be ignorant about God's plan for Israel. In 1 Corinthians 12, he said, don't be ignorant about spiritual gifts. In 2 Corinthians 1, he said, don't be ignorant about suffering and trials in your Christian life. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, do not be ignorant about the rapture and the second coming of Jesus. Now, these are, as David Guzik puts it, remarkably, these are the areas where ignorance is still the most common in the Christian world. The four things that Paul said don't be ignorant about are the four things that most people are ignorant about. Who do you think came up with that plan? The enemy. The devil doesn't want you to know about these things. If he can keep you ignorant, he keeps you ineffective and he keeps you confused. But God is not the author of confusion. He is the author of peace. Now, sleep, why does he use the word sleep? Sleep was a common way to express death uh, at the time that Paul wrote this, Uh, but amongst pagans, people who weren't Christians, it was seen as this eternal sleep. When you died, you just went to sleep forever. It was like, you know, you were just having dreams forever. Uh, Christians also called death sleep, but they emphasised the idea, different meaning of the word uh, from its Greek root, meaning rest. So early Christians began to call their burial places cemeteries, which means uh, a dormitory or a sleeping place, somewhere where you rest. That's what the word cemetery means. And, but the Bible never describes the death of the unbeliever as sleep. Why? Because there's no rest, there's no peace, there's no comfort for them in death, those who are not believers. Those who have not accepted the free gift of salvation Jesus Christ. don't have to do anything, just accept the gift. That's all. And Paul used different parts of language that were common in his day, so he started to refer to it as sleep, to death as sleep. But it, it does not uh, prove the erroneous idea of soul sleep. In other words, when he uses the word sleep, it's not because he's trying to promote the concept of soul sleep, which is that the present dead in Christ are in some state of suspended animation waiting for resurrection to consciousness. D. Emin Hebert said this, Since to depart from this world in death is to be with Christ, is described by Paul as very far better in Philippians 1.23 than the present state of blessed communion with the Lord and blessed activity in his service. It is therefore evident that sleep, as applied to believers, cannot be intended to teach that the soul is unconscious. For the Christian, death is dead, and leaving this body is like laying down for a nap, and waking up in glory in the presence of Jesus. It's moving from one state to another. It's not dying. Uh, And and for those reasons that Christians, we should never sorrow when we lose people uh, from this planet and they die in their earthly bodies. We, We should never sorrow as those who have no hope. That's why Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, we mourn, but we mourn differently. We, we mourn with the hope of, of a reconnection in eternity. So we shouldn't sorrow as others who have no hope when their loved ones in Jesus die. Now, as Christians, obviously, we need to mourn the death of other Christians because we're, we're sad to lose them. But but we always do it with hope. Sorrow is is like... This, when somebody dies, it's like the sadness of seeing somebody off on a long journey and you know you're not going to see them again and you know you actually might not see them again. That That's a possibility. Um, that, that's how 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 people who um, have somebody die that they're not in Christ. They're like, I don't know if I'll see them again. Christians are like, no, no, you're going on a long journey um, and I am going to see you again. I have a total certainty that I'm going to see you again. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. We we have more than just a wishful hope of a resurrection. In the resurrection of Jesus, we have this incredible example of resurrection and a promise of our own resurrection. And for the Thessalonian Christians, their minds were troubled, uh, but their troubled minds had this answer in the statement, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now, when Jesus died, Paul, you know, which is what he's talking about here in, in, in verse 14, um, for if we believe that Jesus died, when Paul wrote about the death of believers, he called it sleep. But in his description of Jesus' death, he didn't soften it by calling it sleep. Why? Because there was nothing soft or peaceful about the death of Jesus Christ. He endured the worst that death could possibly be. Now, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. This is what Paul says, if we believe that Jesus died and he rose again, that's a confident belief that the Apostle Paul is laying out for the early Christians. We are are certainly going to live because Jesus lives and our union with him is stronger than death. That's why we don't sorrow as those who have no hope, and that's why we have more than just a wishful hope. When a sinner dies, somebody who's not in relationship with Jesus, we mourn for them differently. When a believer dies, we only mourn for ourselves because they're with the Lord. They're in the best place possible. Um, One of the most common Christian epitaphs, which is what gets written on a tombstone, Uh, in the catacombs of Rome from very early Christians, first century, if you were to ever go them, uh, was the word peace or in peace. And then with a quote from Psalm 4, verse 6, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And, and that's how we should look at death the same way. Unfortunately, not all Christians uh, have this same place of confidence and hope. And even Christians have, in unbelief, they, they've had the same fear and hopelessness about death, even though we have this, even though we have the words of god in his bible and this is why paul said i don't want you to be ignorant about the things that i'm talking about our 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 sense of loss comes when we're ignorant now let me just read the first half of verse 15 for this we say to you by the word of the lord paul emphasized that this was an authoritative command um but we don't know whether Paul received it by direct revelation uh, or if it was an unrecorded saying of Jesus that, that Paul knew. One way or another, what Paul's saying is that this came from Jesus. It did not originate with Paul. He was just telling them where this came. We say this to you by the word of the Lord. Adam Clark, in no place does the apostle Paul speak more confidently and positively of his inspiration than here and we should prepare ourselves to receive some momentous and interesting truth in the verses to come that that this is what Paul's saying at the beginning of verse 15 okay second half of verse 15 that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the lord will by no means precede those who are asleep Paul wanted the Thessalonians to know that those who are asleep, Christians who have died before Jesus returns, will by no means be at any disadvantage. Robert Thomas, we who are alive means that Paul himself shared in this expectancy. It wasn't because Paul had an erroneous promise of the return of of Jesus in his lifetime. More feasible is the solution that sees Paul setting an example of expectancy for the church of all ages. Proper Christian anticipation includes the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. He's coming with a shout. When Jesus comes, he's going to come personally. Jesus is. The ancient Greek word for shout here is the same word used for the commands that a ship captain makes to to his rowers. It's like, like, yes, do this, row now. Uh, Or a commander speaking to his soldiers. It's authoritative. And he's going to come with that authoritative shout. And there will be some kind of audible signal that prompts this incredibly remarkable event. Uh, and and it may be that all three descriptions, a shout, a voice, a trumpet, refer to the same sound, or they could be three distinct sounds. The rapture will not be silent and it will not be secret. Uh, even though the vast majority of people are not going to understand the sound that they hear or its meaning of what it's what's about to happen. When think about this, when Paul heard, the, the heavenly voice on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. His companions who were with him, they heard the sound of a voice, but they didn't hear the same articulate words that Paul heard. They heard a sound, but they didn't understand its meaning. And, and it may be that the shout, the voice, the triumph uh, sound that accompanies the rapture will have the same effect. The entire world will hear this heavenly sound, but have no meaning of what it actually is. Now, then he says here, uh, with the voice of an archangel. Now, that doesn't mean that the Lord himself, Jesus, is an archangel. The only one described as an archangel in the Bible is Michael in Jude chapter 1, verse 9. Paul means that when Jesus comes, he's going to come in the company of prominent angels. That's, that's who he's coming in the company of. I mean, it's going to be triumphant. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend. Oh, I read that, sorry. Uh, Trumpet of God. I'm getting excited. I'm so excited by this. The trumpet of God. Believers are gathered with the trumpet of God. In the Old Testament, trumpets sounded the alarm for war. And, And basically what it did is it threw the enemy into a panic. Trumpets are sounded in the assembly of God's people. Leviticus 22, Numbers 10. Here, the trumpet of God gathers together God's people which is amazing. Now, there are three other associations of trumpets uh, and end time events. Uh, One is the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which seems to basically basically be clearly connected with this same trumpet of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Then the others are the seven trumpets, which culminate in Revelation chapter 11, and the trumpet gathering of the elect of Israel at the end of the age in Matthew 24. So, uh, D. Edmund compares the trumpet of 1 Thessalonians 4 and the seventh trumpet of Revelation 11. And he says this, The subjects are different. Here, it is the church. There, it will be a wicked world. The results are different. Here, it is the glorious catching up of the church to be with the Lord. There, in Revelation 11, it is further judgment upon a godless world. Here, the last trump signals the close of the life of the church on earth. There, the seventh trumpet marks a climax in a progressive series of apocalyptic judgments upon the living earth. Now, let's compare the trumpets in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and the one mentioned in Matthew 24. This is what we can observe about them. The subjects are different. Matthew is referring to Jewish believers during the Great Tribulation, after the rapture. Thessalonians refers to the church. The circumstances are different. Matthew refers to the gathering of the elect that are scattered all over the earth and makes no mention of resurrection. Thessalonians refers to the raising of the believing dead. Difference between 1 Thessalonians 4 and Matthew 24? The results are different. Matthew refers to living believers being gathered from all over the earth and at the command of the Lord who has returned to the earth in open glory. Thessalonians refers to the uniting of the raised dead with the living believers to meet the Lord in the air. And he says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul's point to the Thessalonians is clear. The prior dead in Christ will not be left out of either the resurrection or the return of Jesus. In fact, they're going to actually experience it first and they will rise first. Many will wonder, and many do wonder, how the dead in Christ are raised first. But there will come a day when in God's eternal plan, the dead in Christ will receive their resurrection bodies. But until that day, we're confident that the dead in Christ are not in some kind of soul sleep or suspended anim- animation. Paul made it clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, that to be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. So either the present dead in Christ are with the Lord in a spiritual body, awaiting their final res- resurrection body, or because of the nature of timeless eternity, which is that God doesn't live in the same timeless eternity we do, they have already received their resurrection bodies because they live in the eternal now, the eternal present. However God's going to do it, we're confident that his promise is true and he will be true to his promise. Verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Those alive and remaining until this coming of Jesus are caught up to meet Jesus in the air, together with all the dead in Jesus who have already risen. And the verb translated caught up here means to seize, to carry off by force. In the ancient Greek, the phrase to meet uh, was used as a technical term to describe the official welcoming of honoured guests. That's what we're going to be. We're going to be officially welcoming the honoured guests into heaven. Now, this passage here is the basis for the New Testament doctrine of the rapture, the catching away of believers to be with Jesus. Now, where does this word come from? Because the word rapture is not in the ancient Greek text. But it does come from the Latin Vulgate, which translates the phrase caught up with the word rapturous, from which we then get our English word rapture. Now, Paul's statement, which is made under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's what he's already outlined. It's dramatic. It's incredible. And he speaks of Christians flying upward, caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We wouldn't believe something like that unless the Bible told us. Um, Not any more than you would believe that God, in the form of Jesus Christ, in, 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 in his Trinitarian form of Jesus, would come as a baby, do miracles, die on a cross, defeat death, and rise again and live in us. So, even though it sounds fantastic and fantastical, uh, it's no different than what we already believe through faith, but through observational faith of those who saw Jesus and documented it, it's no different. Um, Jesus lives in us. And Paul's language here is so incredibly straightforward. And, and it's free from figurative speech. And I believe it's free from figurative speech so that there would be no misunderstanding of his intent. The, the Apostle Paul's declarations here, uh, Henry Alford said this, the Apostles' declarations here are made in the practical tone of a strict matter of fact and are given as literal details, either these details must be received by us as a matter of practical expectation, or we must set aside the apostle Paul as one divinely empowered to teach the church. That's th- that's what we have to look at. Uh, now, Paul's plain language leaves no doubt regarding the certainty of this event. But the timing of this event in the chronology of God's prophetic plan is a matter of significant debate amongst most Christians. Uh, the Bible teaches that there will be an important seven year period of history before the Battle of Armageddon uh, and, and the triumphant return of Jesus. And the debate about this catching away, the rapture, centers on where it fits in this final seven-year tribulation period, uh, which is what it's popularly known as the Great Tribulation, uh, talking about Matthew chapter 24. So the pre, it's, it, it's either a pre-tribulation rapture, a mid-tribulation rapture, or a post-tribulation rapture. The pre-tribulation rapture position believes that believers are caught up before this final seven-year period. Uh, and that's my opinion. I, I I have a pre-tribulation opinion, rapture position, uh, and I believe that's biblically biblically correct. Uh, there are other references to the return of Jesus within First and Second Thessalonians that also support this particular position. First Thessalonians chapter one verse ten shows believers waiting for the return of Jesus. That's a clear implication that they have a hope of his imminent return, not the expectation of an imminent great tribulation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13-18, what we're reading right now, assures us that those believers who died would share equally with the living in the events of the rapture and the resurrection, which answers their fear that somehow the dead in Christ were at a disadvantage. But if Paul believed Christians would go through the great tribulation, then he would count the dead in Christ as far more fortunate than those living Christians who might very well have to now endure the Great Tribulation. It would have been logical for Paul to comfort the Thessalonians with the idea that the dead in Christ were actually better off because they won't have to experience the Great Tribulation. But he didn't do that. Second Thessalonians chapter one, which we're going to get to in another uh, video, comforts Christians Uh, who are enduring hardship, promising them a coming rest while their persecutors are going to face certain judgment. But if Paul knew that the church was destined to pass through the Great Tribulation, it would have been far more appropriate for him to warn these Christians about worse trials, worse sufferings which were ahead, rather than hold the promise of a coming rest. And then he says, and Thus we shall always be with the Lord. The manner in which Jesus will gather us to himself is very impressive, but the main point is that whatever the state of the Christian is, dead or alive, at the Lord's coming. They will always be with the Lord after that event. That's the great reward of heaven, to be with Jesus. Death can't break our unity with Jesus or with other Christians. Uh, David Guzik, We shall always be with the Lord is an important truth with many implications. It implies continuation because it assumes you are already with the Lord. It implies hope for the dying because in death we shall still be with the Lord. It implies future confidence Because after death, we are with the Lord. It implies advancement, because we will one day always be with the Lord. Verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul did not tell them to take comfort, but to give comfort. The way that God works, we always receive comfort as we give comfort. That is a principle through the word of God. The truth of the return of Jesus Christ for his people and the eternal union that we will have with Jesus and we will get to witness between Jesus and his people, that is something that is a great source of comfort for Christians. This final statement of Paul's here in verse 18, uh, it makes sense only... If the catching away of the previous verses actually delivers Christians from some kind of impending danger. If the catching away only brings humanity to God for judgment, then there's little comfort in those words. So that's the conclusion that we draw. So what's the observation? I have a lot of them, but I won't take too long uh, to go through this. I don't know when or how Jesus is coming back um, and what the, the sounds of trumpets and whether we're going to hear them and other people don't. I know there's going to be sounds. I don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, I, I Whenever anybody says that they know, they don't know because Jesus doesn't even know. He's waiting for the Father to say, go. And I observe that what we need to do is live with the comfort of words in this Bible. And I'm reminded of Handel's Messiah, that great, wonderful piece of music that is just written. Uh, It's all scripture, written to wonderful, majestic music. And one of the songs in the Messiah says this, I know that my Redeemer liveth. We may not know when Jesus is coming back, but I tell you what we do know. I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. I know, I know that my Redeemer liveth and though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. I know that my Redeemer liveth. I know for now is Christ risen from the dead, the first fruits of them that sleep. For now is Christ risen from the dead. I know that my Redeemer liveth. That's what I know. I'm going to put some links to some parts of the Messiah in the description of this video below for you to listen to. They were written over 250 years ago, and they are just as powerful today as they ever have been. In fact, there's not a major city in the world still to this day whose opera house does not have a performance of Handel's Messiah at Christmas time around the world. There's nothing else. There's no other piece of music that's played around the world every year, even into the culture in which we live today. And if you've never had a chance to listen to it, listen to it because it will fill you with hope, inspiration and comfort. So with that, let me just pray for you today that uh, these verses would just encourage you and comfort you. Heavenly Father, I pray for every single person watching this right now. Encourage them, lift them up in their spirit. I pray, Lord, that uh, we would just live with the expectation of your return at any time. Ready, Lord, to know that our Redeemer doesn't just live, but he is coming for his church. And God, you're such a gracious God because you give us so many opportunities uh, to respond to the gospel message and you have a a glorious hope for us associated with with just accepting your free gift of salvation. So God, let these words comfort us, and Lord, let us not be ignorant. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.